Welcome to the workshop. The workshop is more than an adult Sunday school. The workshop is a systematic discipleship program for teens and adults, which takes place Sunday morning prior to the service. Our focus is to be building disciples that are grounded in the basic principles of the gospel for spiritual health and for service, and to be equipped to minister broadly to meet spiritual needs around them and to develop and use their particular giftedness for the good of Christ's church. We typically run three 10 to 12 week semesters per year in the fall, winter, and spring. And we look at having some kind of missions project during the summer. If you're interested in finding out more about the workshop, please feel free to contact our administrator at New West Community Church and you can find us on the web at newwestcommunitychurch.com. Thanks very much. Take care. Today we're going to be talking about the eternality of God, the eternality of God. So the question is, and I don't want you to answer it right now. There will be a time when we come to answer this question, but what is happening? I'm just going to light your candles later, but what, what is happening with that candle being lit? Think about that. My, my son-in-law is an HVAC technician, so he just, he can't help himself. <laughs> but I'll come back to you in a moment, young man. Um, Charles Hodge says this about the eternality of God. He says, with God, there is no distinction between the present, past, and future. All things are equally and always present to him. I have to, I have to say up front that this, this was one of those attributes of God that kind of made me a little nervous in getting ready to prepare for, but I'll, I'll be I'll be perfectly transparent. I love this attribute after spending time in it fired me up. It's great. I mean, not, not that any of them aren't great, <laughs> right? But when we spend time thinking about this attribute, it, it, it will blow your mind to think about God in this way. Charnock, who wrote a lot about the eternality of God said this eternity is contrary to time and is therefore a permanent and immutable state, a perfect possession of life without any variation. It comprehends in itself all years, all ages, all periods of time, and never ceases. Never ceases. Yeah, I have a lot, I have a lot of charnak for you today. <laughs> in studying uh, the eternality of God, I came across a, fa- a, a phrase that I thought I'd share with you because at first I thought, what does this even mean? Um, and I don't know if you do any reading in, in this kind of theology, you may have come across this term, uh, but this term is called no succession of moments, no succession of moments. And to break it down, no succession of moments means that there is no beginning. There is no ending. And there is no change. So when we use this term specifically with God, we are saying that God was there before the beginning. He will be there at the end. And most importantly, he never changes. 
And it's important for us to, to think about these things because there's no succession in the knowledge of God. He doesn't get wiser. He knows all things. There's no successions in the decrees of God. He has decreed everything from eternity. And this is what's going to blow some people's minds that even your salvation was declared in eternity. So was Christ. He was, he was declared to be the son of God and sent to the cross and risen from the dead in all eternity. This is amazing. It's, it's dangerous when some people start to think that God doesn't know everything. I don't know if you've heard this term or not, this label. It's not new. It's been around for a very long time, but the, the label has come up again, and it's called open theism. Yeah, some of you are nodding your head. Did, could you tell us what you may know about open theism? I'm not an expert in it at all, but I'm, I'm curious to know what some of you have heard about open theism. Exactly, exactly. And just, just so you know, I stayed away from this topic entirely in, this, in today's lesson because I know you're talking about the knowledge of God. But I did want to touch on this a bit because open theism is gaining ground in Christian circles. And I, and I wonder if you would understand why, um, but it's pretty plain. Because the, the reason why people are gravitating towards open theism is because they really want, they meaning theologians, professors, pastors, Christians are moving towards this idea of open theism because they really, really, really want to have free will autonomous from God. They want to have free will autonomous from God. And that's dangerous. Because when we take the true autonomy of God and place it in ourselves and make ourselves the arbiter of what happens, you are now essentially placing yourself in the position of God. I heard one uh, teacher say that open theism likes to talk about God and his growing of knowledge as one who takes risks. God took a risk in creating Adam and Eve and putting them in the garden, hoping that they wouldn't sin. He took a risk in doing that. And I hope that none of us fall into that because, you know, taking a risk implies that you do not know the outcome. Taking a risk means that you're hoping that what you want to have happen happens. And their backup to that is, oh, no, we totally believe in the sovereignty of God, but he limits himself. Heresy. And, and it's not new. It's not new. Um, it, it happened way back in the early church as well. But I, I thought I'd touch a little bit on this idea that there's no succession of moments. There's no beginning. There's no ending. There's no changing. Okay, so no succession in the knowledge of God. He doesn't get smarter. We don't surprise him. What's going on in Europe right now? Not a surprise. COVID, not a surprise. Your health issues, not a surprise. Okay, nothing is a surprise to him. Now that raises some tricky questions about his sovereignty and his will. And it's actually one of those things that open theists attack in the sense that, well, if God is all knowing and he's all in control, why is there evil in the world? And they go right to the end of that and they say, well, if there's evil in the world and God is all controlling, 
that must mean he's either not in control like he says he is, or he's malevolent. Either one, dangerous, unbiblical heresy. Because again, it's all about driving the self. I get to decide. So, having said that, redemption came after creation. That is true. When we look at the chronological event in scripture, redemption came after creation, came after the fall. But know this, that redemption happened in eternity by decree because God is outside of time. Remember the definition? He's not bound by time. Everything is present to him. So, that's not hell, by the way. This, this is just this is just to remind me of the candle and the question. So, I'll come to you in a minute. What's going on with the candle at your table? Just say it out loud. Not much. Yeah. It's one BTU. Yeah. Okay. Roughly. What else, what, what's happening? Giving light, giving heat, melting wax, taking oxygen. Oh, now you're getting into the realm that I like to talk about. Running out. What do you mean by running out? So it's going to burn the wick down. Okay. Anything else? Combining oxygen and carbon. It can be, isn't it? Are you like me where if there's a bonfire or a fire, we just, we have a stick. We, it's just, I think it's a man thing. We got to just poke the fire, right? Just got to burn stuff. It has destructive potential. Yes. It also has life-giving potential. Right in our survival kits, we would have one or two candles. Right in your car, uh, they're told that we're told that one or two candles could give off just enough warmth uh, to keep us awake in, in really cold weather. Not not to keep us warm, obviously, but to keep us awake, and that's important. Okay, so there's there's life, there's light. Right. What what are what are our flashlights measured in? Lumens and candle power. Candle power. Okay. I know. Crazy. There's this term, and I always mess this term. He's, he's perked up now. There's this term called stoichiometric combustion. This is, what's, this is what's not happening at your candle. I just let me put this. This is not what's happening at your candle. Because it's theoretical combustion. As a gas fitter, we are striving towards theoretical combustion, but we know that we'll never attain it. How futile is that? Our job is to get as close as we can to what we call their, uh, theoretical combustion. The idea behind it is, is that we take oxygen, nitrogen, and we heat it. And on the other side of the equation, we get light, we get heat, we get water vapor. Uh, I say nitrogen, carbon dioxide. And we get that because we add to it what's called primary air and secondary air, okay, to, to achieve combustion. 
Now, what's happening with the candle here is we're not just giving it primary air and secondary air, we're giving it what's called excess air, meaning giving it more air than it needs to support combustion. Okay. In theoretical combustion, in stoichiometric combustion, there's no excess air. We've fine tuned it so much that we don't need to add any extra air in. All the air that's needed for combustion, pure combustion, is in the primary and secondary stages. It's been calculated by some very smart people that in a flame, the chemical compound changes up to 30 times as it moves through the flame. Changes 30 times. It's amazing. Okay? But remember this, God doesn't change. We don't add anything to him. We don't add in any excess to him. He has everything he needs and he is eternal. And please don't start singing that song, Eternal Flame. Oh, it's too late. It's already in your heads. Charles Hodge says this, that with God, there is no distinction between the past, present, and future. All things are equally and always present to him. There's nothing added to him. We talked about a lot about that last week. Okay, but in his eternality, he is complete, and he is in all places, all times. Charnock says this, God loses or gains nothing at any moment. So this candle gains and loses. God doesn't gain or lose anything. He is always the same, excellency and perfection in the same infiniteness. He also went on to say that he is what he always was, and he is what he will always be. There's no change. There's no evolution with God. There's no plan Z. He knows everything. He is in control of everything. Also, in, in my study time, I came across these two words, and we're not unfamiliar with these two words, everlasting and eternal. Um, we see them a lot in scripture. We see them a lot in song. And it was an interesting point that was made that most often, biblically speaking, when we're talking about the eternality of God, everlasting is best used when connected with him. And the word eternal is often best used when connected to life after death. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. Right? He gave his one and only son so that whoever would believe in him shall have eternal life. So there are scripture verses that talk about God being the same from everlasting to everlasting. Now, could you use the term eternal for God? Of course. Could you use the term for, of, of everlasting for everlasting life? Yes. But more often than not, we see in the Bible, in the New Testament, eternal life being labeled just that, eternal life. More often than not. And then in the Old Testament, we most likely will see the eternality of God being expressed as God is the same from everlasting to everlasting. And it has some nuances it has to do with some nuances in the original language. And in both Hebrew and Greek, 
that you'll sometimes use the same word to talk about these two things. So context now becomes important. So that's why um, some theologians have said, when we talk about the eternality of God, it's sometimes best, most times best to talk about the everlasting nature of God, not the eternal nature of God. This may come more clear for you near the end, but hold on to it. If you think this is backwards, great. Love to talk to you at the end. So, is time a construct? Is time a construct? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. But turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 1. Again, this is why Genesis chapter 1 is so important for us as Orthodox evangelical Christians. And that when people start saying that Genesis 1 to 15 or 1 to 12 is all allegory and myth, that's dangerous and heretical because they're messing with the very nature of God. So picking up in verse 1, in the beginning, we could just stop right there. (laughs) We'll continue, but we could just stop right there in the beginning. That means that there had to be something before the beginning. Let's read on. God created the heavens and the earth. Again, we could just stop right there. (laughs) In the beginning, God created. That means that he had to have existed before there was an official beginning. Because how do we measure a beginning? Well, let's keep reading. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There's the Trinity. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning. What was that? Sounds like the beginning. The demarcation of time. So what this tells us is that it, there was a beginning. And before that beginning, there is God. And at the beginning, that's when God created. Didn't just show up. Didn't just happen. He created it. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the earth. What did, what did Genesis 1-1 say? In the beginning, God created. Hebrews 1-2 tells us that it was through Christ that God created. Right? John 1-1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, was not anything made. So when did that start? Each one of these talk about in the beginning, which means that there was a demarcation of time. And before that demarcation happened, God existed. And he existed in Trinity. Charnock goes on to say, 
that if he had a beginning, meaning this one, not one, but there are some people who say that, well, Christ wasn't with God in the beginning in a sense that he was God. They say that he was created by God, a.k.a. Arians, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. They'll say that he was the first of creation. And then God created through him everything. That's not true. Because what does Jesus say about himself? I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Philip, when you see me, you see the Father. You want to see what the Father's doing? Look what I'm doing. What I'm doing is what the work is of the Father. Okay? Don't forget Jesus himself even declared that he was God. Even before Abraham was, they didn't pick up stones to kill him for his good works. They picked up stones because they knew exactly what he was saying, that he was equating himself with God. And they were going to kill him for it. Okay. So some people will say, well, actually, Jesus was probably created. No. Because if he had a beginning, he might have an end. And so all of our happiness, all of our hope and being would expire with him. If God had a beginning, he'll have an end. And we know that not to be true. So in the beginning, God created heavens, earth, sun, and moon. That was day and night, first day, first 24-hour day, beginning of time, beginning of time. So what I want you to do around your tables now for about seven minutes or so, come up with some other scripture verses that support God's eternality or his everlasting to everlasting. And there's a clue there. There's a bunch of verses that talk about God as everlasting to everlasting. Ready, go. I'll go, I'll go 3.11 until Caleb tells me different. I'll go 3.11 until Caleb tells me different. Good. I'm sure that you have a huge list. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you have a huge list. Let's turn to, let's turn to Psalm 90, one of the classic texts when referring to the eternality of God. Psalm 90, Psalm 90, starting in verse one, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth forever. You had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Okay. So here's the reference back to time, the beginning of time before anything was made. You were. Yeah. Amazing. So some other verses for us to, to look at would be Genesis 9.16. Genesis 9.16 says, when the, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. That's after the flood. Ecclesiastes. Just a point of interest. We almost did Ecclesiastes in our small group study. Again, one of those books that very rarely gets hit on in small groups or from the pulpit, but it's a fantastic book of the Bible. Chapter 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, 
so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Isn't that interesting? That God puts into man the sense of eternity and the, the frailness of his own life and yet limits it so that he can't understand it or she can't understand it like God understands it. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you, God. Right? We already have a problem with our pride. Can you imagine if he didn't do that? Right? It's a beautiful, beautiful chapter and verse. Another one, First Chronicles 16.36. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, amen, and praise the Lord. Yeah. So here's, this, here's an example of the everlasting to everlasting. Could you use eternal for, to describe what? Yes. Right? But more often than not, we find that when things like this are ascribed to God, it's ascribed to him as everlasting to everlasting. And when we're talking about eternal life, it's usually coined in those terms. This is eternal life. Could we use everlasting life? Sure, we could. We could. Um, and it was an interesting comment and I, and I dug into it a bit and thought, yeah, it's worthy saying, right. Um, primarily because we are not eternal. We are not eternal. God is the only one who's eternal. Now we will live into eternity future, but that doesn't make us eternal. Okay, we have to be very clear on that. Our soul will live on. This body dies. Hallelujah. We get a new one. Hallelujah. I was just talking to Marika about that this morning. So looking forward to that resurrection body. Right? But that doesn't make me eternal. I had a beginning. I had conception. And this is, a, this is one other reason, if I can just put this in here. This is why it's so important that we stand up for the rights of the unborn. They have a beginning. They matter. Life doesn't begin outside the womb. It begins in the womb at the point of conception. That's so important. So if we would agree that God is eternal, which I think we do, this brings strong, solid ground of comfort against distress for Christians and the church. Because if God is eternal, meaning he's outside of time and he knows all things and he's in control of all things, nothing is a surprise to him. If it, if it, if it, sorry? Absolutely it is. And it doesn't just go, you know, um, to, the, to the level of, well, if this building burns down, it's not a surprise to God. It would be horrible for us, but not a surprise for God. Right? Because he's in control of all things. He's eternal. He's outside of it all. If God is eternal, so is his covenant. So is his covenant. And I love the covenant that he makes with Abram. I love the covenant that he makes with Abram because he makes Abram fall asleep after he cuts those animals and birds in half. And then God alone walks through the parts. Okay. And you've probably heard me talk about this time and time again. So please indulge me that that act was an act that was enabled, not enabled, but was enacted by two kings, a conquering king and the king who was conquered. And it was a contract, essentially. And when, when they both walked through, they were saying that the conquering king was saying, I will take care of you. I will look after you. I will protect you. But there's going to be some stipulations to this. And the conquered king 
would walk through saying, yes, I understand the stipulations. I understand the rules and I will live by them. And both of them were saying to them that if they break their covenant with each other, so be it to them what happened to the animals. They're putting their life on the line. Now, when we look at that act with Abram and God, and God does it himself, that is massively significant. Because what he's communicating to Abram is that my covenant doesn't depend on you. My covenant depends on me, and my covenant is everlasting because I am eternal. I am everlasting, he would say. And so when we bring this forward to our own faith and our own salvation, there's tremendous assurance for us in this. Because when God makes a promise to us that when we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, we will be what? We'll be saved. And Ephesians tells us that when we're saved, what happens? We're sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of our redemption. Okay? Those things aren't revoked. Why? Because God is eternal, and that's an eternal promise. And none of his promises fail. None of them fall to the ground. We need to take very strong solace in that. So we've talked about transcendence and imminence before, and I thought it'd be somewhat appropriate to to layer it in here to talk about the transcendence, meaning that God is exalted above all things. And and this, what I would refer back to pastor Paul's opening session after we did the intro, where he talked about the simplicity of God, And how we work from complexity to simplicity. And how that makes God above all things. When we look at Genesis 1.1, he is outside of time. Because he created it. He can't create something that binds him. Okay, that's contradictory. That's logically incomprehensible. So, the eminence means... There, he has a presence in creation, which is mind-boggling that we worship this eternal, autonomous being who is also imminent in time. And some people have said, don't get mixed up with, with God being imminent in time and not knowing what time it is. God knows what happened last Monday. He does. Okay. He doesn't forget. That's a mind boggling thing for people to think about too, especially when we come to scriptures about sin and how God takes care of our sin and washes it away. But he's eternal. He's transcendent. He's imminent. This diagram is my feeble attempt to try and illustrate the eternality of God. I know some of you are going to go, why do you have this line called eternity? That's time. You can't do that. He's there. <laughs> time started here. Yeah, I understand that. <laughs> but in my feebleness, I'm trying to illustrate that God is above time and eternity. He exists in it, but he's above it. There was a time when the universe began. Okay. And God was there. And every moment, Down this timeline, this linear timeline that we could go, God is there every moment. And at the same time, he is before it. He is in it all. 
Remember, with God, there is no past, present, future. Everything is present to him. That blows my mind. And in a certain way, I'm glad it blows my mind because if I can't figure out God, that's probably a good thing. Right? In fact, John Frame kind of said the same thing. He goes, you know, for those of us who are really, really smart, really educated, we think we figured out God, but we actually have come to a point where we know less about God than we thought we knew about God. <laughs> and, and it's true to a, to a certain degree, right? That those of us who have some advanced education, we tend to niche down into a specialty. Okay. We tend to niche down into a specialty. And the more we niche down, the more we know we don't know what we should know. <laughs> right. But it doesn't excuse us to not know the eternal God. He wants us to know him. He's given us his word to get to know him. So in the last few slides, I want to share with you. Some have said that the infinite applied to space is his omnipresence. So if God is eternal, this eternality applicated to space is his omnipresence. He is present everywhere at the same time. They've also said that this infinity or this eternality of God applied to time is what we describe as his eternality. What it really boils down to for me in the study of the eternality of God is this God's autonomy. For me, that's one of the things that, that kept bubbling out of my study about the eternality of God is his autonomy. First Timothy one, 15 to 17, we could just look at 17 specifically. Paul says to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay. God is the only truly autonomous being. And his eternality is a big portion of that. So in conclusion, as we wrap up, how do we do this in the home? How do we speak the word in the home? Well, there's promises of God. One thing that we could do is we could get to know some of these promises of God. They're not hard to find. The internet's a wonderful thing. You just go to Google and type in promises of God and you'll get 16,000 references, if not more on the promises of God. You'll probably even get reading lists and home helps and all that. Just be careful who you look at. <laughs> okay. Or do the hard work yourself and actually use your Bible. Start reading it. I don't mean that sarcastically. That, sorry, that came across sarcastically, but let's, let's start reading it. Understand the promises of God in relationship to his eternality. None of his promises fail. The return of Christ been 2000 years since he ascended to heaven and there have been lots of people who have said well it's taken this long how are you sure he's coming back in fact it happened in peter's era <laughs> it didn't even wait 100 years and they're already okay ready to go and his answer to them is time is not the same for god that it is for us he is not slow to keeping his promises for him, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. 
Don't get anxious. Finally, God is with you always. He is with you always. Now, this has some really joyous and happy connotations to it. This also carries some warnings. And when we think that we can sin just kind of on our own in the corner, and God won't find out. Sorry. Not sorry. Right? And when you're going through times of trouble, Psalms is loaded with the language of God is with us wherever we are. Okay? And one of the classic verses of this is Matthew at the end of the gospel. Turn with me there. Starting in verse 16 of chapter 28. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. How much authority? How much? Does that mean little bits? That means all. It means all authority. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And here's a promise. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, to the end of eternity. That's what he's talking about. And we know that eternity never ends. So Jesus is with us to the very end of what never ends. Let's pray. Let's pray.